You're listening to the Molehill Podcast, an audio anthology of treasured writings read aloud by the writers themselves. I'm your host, Drew Miller. Two Villanelles. The Older Brother. My brother dragged himself home in disgrace with ragged clothes and whiskers on his chin. If I were him, I couldn't show my face. His life, it seemed, had always been a waste. We got along quite well without him. Then my brother dragged himself home in disgrace. Father cried. The two of them embraced. The old man let himself be duped again. If I were him, I couldn't show my face. The blubbering, the pawing, such poor taste. All self-respect went out the window when my brother dragged himself home in disgrace. How can I love a brother so debased? Respect a father so benumbed to sin? If I were him, I couldn't show my face. Am I the only person in this place who still remains the man I've always been? My brother dragged himself home in disgrace. If I were him, I couldn't show my face. That was Jonathan Rogers reading his poem, The Older Brother, a Villanelle, originally found in the Molehill, Volume 2. Do you know what a Villanelle is? Here, I'll save you a Wikipedia search. A villanelle, also known as villanesque, is a 19-line poetic form consisting of five tercets followed by a quatrain. There are two refrains and two repeating rhymes, with the first and third line of the first tercet repeated alternately at the end of each subsequent stanza until the last stanza, which includes both repeated lines. Okay, so if you listened to last week's episode, you'll know what a quatrain is. Each stanza of Malcolm Geith's poems was a quatrain, composed of four lines, where three of the four lines rhymed with one another. I didn't know what a tercet was, though. Turns out, it's a three-line stanza, where the first and third lines rhyme. Well, that's a lot of poetic technicality. The main takeaway is that the villanelle is a very stringent poetic form requiring great precision, and Jonathan's pretty darn good at words. You'll hear the second of his two villanelles at the end of this episode. Keep your ears peeled for those tercets, repeating rhymes, and of course, the quatrain at the end. And if you want to see these poems in writing as well as hear them, check out the transcript for this episode at rabbitroom.com slash podcast. And now we turn our attention to Jana Barber and her beautiful personal story, Cinnamon. But... Even as I sat down to record, just five minutes ago, in fact, I was contacted by Jana's husband, John, who carried a message of utmost importance. He breathlessly relayed to me a piece of information so urgent in its implications, so far-reaching in its impact, that I would be failing my duty as host of the Molehill Podcast not to share this dubious fact with you. You see... Before the fifth Hutchmoot, which is the Rabbit Room's annual arts conference, Jana Barber arm-wrestled Andrew Peterson in an epic three-hour match that resulted in a draw. The location of that match is so sacred that Hutchmoot had to change venues. If you ever meet Jana, never, and I mean never, challenge her to an arm wrestling match unless you're ready to cancel the rest of your day's plans. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, I want to share a few quick words about Janice's piece, Cinnamon. 
First appearing in volume four of The Molehill, Cinnamon is a memoir, which makes it extra special to hear Jana herself read it out loud. It's the story of her very first therapy session and the winding road of healing that it set her upon. Jana invites us as fellow travelers to follow her into some of her most formative childhood memories and then back into the present day, witnessing the ever-evolving connections between her identity and her faith. Without further ado, let us embark. It's a strange thing to go to therapy for the first time, an uncomfortable thing, like inviting a new friend over for coffee, then greeting her at the door in a swimsuit, or opening your mouth for the dentist when you haven't brushed your teeth in two weeks. When I called to set up my first appointment, the counselor told me that she usually met with clients in the back of a portable trailer, which was currently serving as a crisis pregnancy center. Just great, I thought. That'll make this easier. I was 22 years old at the time, living in a large apartment on the lower level of what had once been a two-story office building. I lived there with my husband, John, and our newborn son, Sam. We chose the apartment because it was cheap and close to the college where John had just started working on his master's degree. I'd recently quit working in order to stay home with our son, Sam, and we were home in that tacky apartment a lot. I remember staring at the dark paneling walls of my bedroom and living room for hours on end, wishing I had someone besides a baby to talk to. For a change of scenery, I could walk into the spacious kitchen whose walls were papered with flowery Laura Ashley patterns or sit on the floor of the master bedroom and run my fingers back and forth across the fluffy, bright pink carpet. Then there was Sam's room, painted a bright blue to match the curtains I'd picked out when I was pregnant. But with only one small window in the room, Robin's egg turned out to be less cheery than we'd hoped. I drove for 30 minutes by myself on a Saturday morning. Then I sat in my parked car staring at the empty gravel parking lot for another five minutes before getting out. As I walked up the wooden ramp made for wheelchairs, Gail opened the door and met me on the porch, smiling. She was a tall, thin woman with wispy blonde hair that was cut short in a messy style. She wore flowy printed pants with a plain knit top, a crocheted sweater, and not much makeup. Well, hey there, Jana, she said, one hand raised to shade her eyes and the other stretched toward me for a handshake. I'm Gail, she told me, even though we'd already met at church once before. I grabbed her offered hand and gingerly shook it. Then I half smiled and looked at the ground. Um, it's really nice to meet you. She pointed the way into the building for me. My office is down the hall on the right, she said, just across from the bathroom. I walked through a musty, half-lit hallway and sat down on the small sofa in her office, scooting a ragged pillow with faded flowers out of its corner and onto the cushioned seat next to me. Gail sat down behind her beat-up second-hand desk for just a second before remembering that she'd forgotten to turn on the noisemaker in the hall. I can go turn that on if you want, she said, half-rising and pointing to the small box on the floor just outside the office door. I looked at her with a confused expression. You know, she waited, for privacy. I hesitated, blinked, and nodded, a universal sign of understanding. But since it's just the two of us here today, she said, lowering herself back into her chair, it's really not necessary. Yeah, I stalled, waiting for her to offer another option. She said nothing. Okay, I finally said, noting the open door, another luxury afforded by just the two of us. It's fine, I guess. 
Gail asked me how I was doing, and I mumbled something and stared at the floor. She was quiet for a moment, and then spoke. Well, if you ever think you're pregnant again, I've got access to free pregnancy tests. She smiled for half a second, until she saw the startled look on my face. It was kind of a strange thing to say to someone who's come to talk to you about postpartum depression. My look faded slowly, but Gail was unfazed. Free is always good, right? She probed. So, you know, just let me know. We sat in silence for two more minutes. I know because I counted the number of times I kicked my cross leg. 122. Then Gail got direct. Jana, why did you want to come see me today? She asked. I was caught off guard by her abruptness. I sifted through my thoughts for various possible answers. There was frustration, loneliness, sleeplessness, the severe guilt I felt for being an angry mother. Finally, I narrowed it down to one incomplete sentence. Because I'm afraid that I'm going crazy, I told her, looking down at the area rug and scuffed up wooden floor. Why would you think that, she asked, as if she were a math teacher helping me solve a problem. I concentrated on not sounding like a dramatic teenager. Well, I sighed. I guess it's because I'm so mad all the time. And why are you so mad all the time? Gail didn't make air quotes as she repeated my words, but her voice changed tone, kind of like vocal italics, and the word time hung in the air between us. I recalled the moment I realized just how angry I had become. It was two in the afternoon. I'd been trying to get Sam down for a nap, but the more I patted and bounced and swayed, the more upset he got. I stood in the room beside his crib, staring at the bright blue walls, feeling like I was holding a malfunctioning alarm clock in my arms, instead of a baby. And the only way to get the noise to stop was to smash the clock against the wall and break it. So, this is how shaken baby syndrome starts, I thought to myself. That's when I knew I couldn't keep everything all to myself anymore. I needed help, and that meant telling someone the truth. I don't know, I sighed rubbing the knuckles of my closed fists. Maybe because my baby screams at me all the time? What do you mean when you say your baby screams at you all the time, Gail asked, pulling out a yellow legal pad from the top drawer of her desk. Well, he wakes me up crying because he's hungry, I said. And it's like he can't even wait two seconds for me to sit down with him, pull up my t-shirt, and undo my bra strap. And while I'm working on it, he just gets louder and madder until he's totally freaking out which makes it even harder for him to latch on. Oh yeah, she said. I remember those days. A smile spread slowly across her face. Does he nurse a lot during the day? Yeah, like every three hours. Gail clicked open the tip of a ballpoint pen that had been lying on her desk. And how's he sleeping? He sleeps pretty well once he actually gets to sleep. I shifted in my seat and grabbed the old pillow beside me, then looked back up at Gail. She nodded for me to go on, so I hugged the pillow and continued. I mean, he'll sleep for almost six hours most nights. It's just that he won't go to sleep all by himself, and sometimes he flips out and just cries and cries, and nothing we do can calm him down, until he finally conks out because he's so tired from crying. I recounted the scene in our apartment the night before, with John and me taking turns making laps around our coffee table, bouncing and patting Sam on the back for hours until he finally gave up and slept. Gail listened and nodded, making notes on the pad of paper in front of her. I was never a high-energy person to begin with, I said, but you probably guessed that already. Why would you think that, Jana? 
I don't know, because people are always telling me that I'm too quiet, not bubbly enough. It was beginning to irritate me that Gail had nothing but questions. It's just that I've been nursing Sam for five months now, and I can never get a good night's sleep anymore. I loosened my grip on the shaggy pillow on my lap. I mean, I remember looking at all those baby magazines in the doctor's office when I was pregnant, but my life now, it just doesn't look anything like the pictures I saw then. What does it look like? It looks like me sitting on my couch, half naked all the time. I put the pillow down next to me, then picked it up again. I'm always covered in drool or spit up. I'm always holding a crying baby or rocking him or burping him or cleaning up his... Sorry, I guess I shouldn't say that word. Oh, don't worry about that, Gail quipped. You can say all the cuss words you want to in here. She smiled before speaking again so long as you don't mind me saying them back to you when the need arises. Okay, I said quietly, but I couldn't return her smile. I thought about the times when I'd punch the arm of the couch while nursing Sam, so I wouldn't punch him in the face instead. No one had ever accused me of being impatient or having a nasty temper before, but now here I was, close to losing it, in my therapist's office. I felt embarrassed and didn't know what else to say, so I looked back down at the carpet. Gail thought for a minute, and then she asked, How does it make you feel, Jana, when the baby won't stop crying? Like he's mad at me, because I don't know what I'm doing? Like I can't take good care of him? Like I'm a really bad mom, or something? And how old is your baby now? About five months. Does anyone else help you with him? Yeah, my husband John, whenever he's not working or going to classes. Uh, he helps. But you're home by yourself with Sam most of the time. Yeah. I see. And how long have you two been married? Almost two years. Wow, she breathed out. Sounds like you've had a lot of change in your life lately, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Well, Jana, Gail said, glancing down at the watch on her arm. I think you're doing a good thing by coming to talk to me about all of this. I can't promise that things are suddenly going to get better after our talk today. But come back and see me again next week, and we'll see if we can come up with some strategies to help you feel less angry and less alone. Those two words, angry and alone, stuck with me throughout the following week, but not in a negative way. They stung, but just a little, sort of like when you pour hydrogen peroxide into a fresh scrape on your knee. I could imagine tiny bubbles forming on the surface of my heart, so I blew softly toward the redness and hoped a band-aid would be coming soon. The next time I saw Gail, I wasn't as quiet and shy as I'd been the week before. I sat down and told her many of the bad thoughts that had been running through my mind, which was not at all what I had expected to happen when I made that first appointment. I'd figured Gail would do most of the talking and somehow teach me to be a better, more patient mom. Instead, Gail let me do almost all the talking, and she was content to just listen. My whole life, whenever people would ask me how I was doing, It seemed they never really wanted to know. I grew up in the South, 
and I was a preacher's daughter, so the place that I got asked that question the most was church. Sunday mornings were very busy for the churchgoers that I knew, and they didn't make time for heartfelt, lengthy conversation. In that atmosphere, the phrase, how are you, is more of a greeting than a question, and the proper response to that greeting was one word, fine. Even if you'd been fighting with your spouse on the way to church, even if you couldn't stand the person who was asking you, even if your kids were driving you crazy and you really needed someone to talk to, all we ever told each other was that everything was fine. Gail gave me the time and space I needed to tell her how I was truly doing. She taught me the freedom of the word and, as in, I'm a loving mother and I sometimes lose my temper. Both statements can be true. You can be a good parent and still make mistakes. And just because I felt angry when my baby was having a meltdown, it didn't mean I no longer cared about him. I saw Gail once a week for about three months, and she never said to me, Jana, I think you're clinically depressed. She never gave me an official postpartum diagnosis either. She never treated me like a broken zipper or a dirty sock that needed washing. Instead, she just let me be the non-working, unattractive mess that I was, and she sat with me in the mess until I learned how to clean myself up and start zipping again. Gail did tell me once that anger and sadness were two sides of the same coin, and that helped me see that just because I wasn't crying all the time, it didn't mean I wasn't depressed, postpartum or otherwise. I understood enough to know that being mad all the time wasn't good for me or my baby, so I worked hard to get rid of my rage. The more I learned to trust Gail, the more I began to tell her about other things that had upset me over the years. Times when my mom had told me to smile more and to be more bubbly. The pressure I felt from both mom and dad to be nearly perfect. As well as the times when my parents had punished me too harshly in anger. I didn't want to repeat those behaviors with my little boy. I wanted him to feel like I loved him all the time, no matter what he did or how he acted. One day I confessed to Gail that I'd always dreamed of becoming a writer. She suggested I begin by writing down the feelings I was having about being a new mom. She encouraged me to buy myself a private journal, and in those moments when it felt like I was losing control, if I could just take a deep breath and remember to go right instead of yell, maybe that would help. Your baby's not going to starve to death if you make him wait five minutes to collect yourself, Gail told me. And don't be afraid of who might read what you write, she said. This activity is just for you. I figured my handwriting was so bad that no one could read it anyway, so I felt free to put all my feelings onto paper good and bad, and I discovered that writing things down felt really good. There was no need to edit or censor myself. I just let everything flow. And once I saw my thoughts written down on paper, caged on the page in black and white rather than roaming wild in my head, I was able to ferret out the crazy ones and let go of some of the impossible expectations that I'd placed on myself as a new mother and a fairly new wife. After a while, I began writing letters I knew I would never send to various people who'd hurt my feelings in the past. The act of turning those feelings and memories into words and sentences freed me from the power they held over me. I was amazed to learn that simple tools like paper and a pen could help me learn to control my emotions rather than letting them control me. I also told Gail about the hurt I felt over all the times we'd moved when I was growing up. Before, I had always told people, that moving around a lot had helped me learn how to be more outgoing, and that our family was really close to each other because of all the hard things we'd been through. 
Those statements were only half true. There's pain involved when you never stay in one town longer than three years, and when people tell you how much they love your dad one day, then yell at him from the pews the next. I trusted Gail with the pain in my little girl heart, and in return, she prayed for that little girl to grow up and be healed. The most effective tools in Gail's therapy box were her simple silence and strong presence. When she did talk, it was mostly to ask me questions that would get me to talk or think a little more. It's hard for me to believe in God's love sometimes, I admitted to her one day. When so many bad things happen in the world, to me and to my family. After that confession, Gail sat quietly for a moment. Then she suggested I close my eyes. It sounded weird at first, and I resisted, but eventually I relaxed and did what she said. Then Gail asked me a stranger-than-usual question. Can you tell me where you are? Yeah, I said. I'm just sitting here on the couch with you. The room was very quiet, and I was sitting very still. And what do you see around you, she asked. Nothing, I said. It's, it's just really dark. Can you see anything at all? No, I said. Now, concentrate a little harder, Jana. Her tone was serious. I want you to tell me everything you can see. Well, I'm just sitting here in the dark. Silence. Actually, it's more like I'm hunched over, uh, kind of kneeling on the ground. And why are you hunched over? I don't know. It's like there's this paved road or something underneath my feet. I guess maybe I'm bending over to feel of it. Can you feel anything else around you? Yeah, there's a wall next to me, right next to me. It feels like it's made of bricks, old and crumbly ones. The edges of the bricks are bumpy and a little sharp. What else? It feels damp and cold. Gail let me sit with that image for a minute or two. Then she said, And where is God? Well, I think he's up there somewhere. I raised my hand and pointed up. But there's another layer of bricks above my head, too. I started to cry. It's just so thick, I whispered, and dark. There's no light anywhere. I can't see a way to get out. When I was a little girl, I was always the first one in the car when church was over. At the end of every service, Dad would call on someone to say the final prayer, and while that man was praying, Dad would walk from the pulpit to the back of the church, so he could be there waiting to shake hands with everyone as they left the building. Mom usually stayed near the front to visit with anyone who lingered up there. My little brother usually ran off to play in the churchyard, and I don't know where my older sister went, but I didn't care. I was only looking out for myself. I loved the stillness of our parked car on a hot day, when the fake leather seats burned to the touch. I opened the door, climbed inside, and let the quiet heat envelop me. I sat and waited for the rest of my family to be ready to go home, and no one else bothered me. No one wanted to shake my hand or say how pretty my dress was. No one asked any embarrassing details about whatever family story Dad had shared as an illustration that day. And best of all, no one told me to smile. Back then, 
Smiles were just as much a part of your outfit as frilly dresses, white tights, and shiny black shoes. But I couldn't run or jump or climb in those hard shoes, so what was there to smile about? Not to mention all the trouble Mom went to to get my hair to look pretty. But guess what happens to your nicely styled hair when you run in the churchyard? That's right, it gets all sweaty and messed up, and then you get in trouble for messing up your clothes too. So it was better to just go and sit in the car and wait for some other time to play. A time when you could actually enjoy yourself. My sister was much better at playing the role of a small town preacher's kid, also known as the center of attention. When church was over, people always talked to her because she had a pretty singing voice, and they often complimented her for it. My brother also craved the spotlight and was known for silly antics and making everyone laugh. I was just the boring little girl in the middle, not cute or funny or talented. I never caused any trouble, but I also never got noticed for doing anything out of the ordinary, except for being extra quiet. That girl's always off on some other planet, my mom used to say about me. And while it's true that I could entertain myself for a long time with my dolls and toys, it didn't mean that I always liked that no one ever seemed to worry about me. For me, the best thing about Sundays came after church, in the form of Sunday dinner. Dinner is what most people think of as the evening meal, but on Sundays, since we went to church again at nighttime, our biggest meal was served at lunchtime, and we called it dinner. Mom usually cooked roast beef in the crock pot, along with potatoes and carrots. We also had yeast rolls, green beans, and some kind of dessert, followed by nearly two hours of silence, while everybody else in the house took a nap. We weren't required to sleep once we got older, but we still spent most of the afternoon in our bedrooms, lying on our beds. It wasn't like I hated everything about church, though. I loved singing the hymns. I had most of them memorized. And I felt proud that I didn't need to hold a hymnal while we sang. Dad's sermons were pretty nice, too. He told great stories, and although he got loud on occasion, he was never one of those judgmental kind of preachers, always screaming about hellfire and damnation. A lot of times he told stories to illustrate his main point, and a lot of those stories were inspired by the everyday life of our family. Whenever Dad mentioned me in a story, I was embarrassed and happy at the same time. It felt good that Dad paid attention to my little life, but weird that people I didn't know got to hear about it. And whenever they asked me questions about it later on, I never knew what to say to their smiling faces. It always felt like they were teasing me, even though they were probably just being curious. When I was five years old, I decided I wanted to become a Christian, and I was always asking mom and dad when it would be my turn to walk down the aisle, pray the prayer, and accept Jesus into my heart. They gave me short answers like, soon, and whenever you're ready, but they weren't sure if I really was ready. So they waited and watched, hoping for me to do something special that showed I understood what it meant to make such a big decision. But for me, it never felt like a decision, because I never chose to believe in something. I don't remember not knowing that Jesus had died for me. I don't remember not knowing that I was a sinner who needed saving. I don't remember not knowing about heaven and hell. I only remember believing what I had always known, what I had been taught from infancy, that death was real and hell was imminent, unless I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, the one who came to set us all free. One night, when we were living in Winter Haven, Florida, my sister and I were fighting with each other instead of going to sleep at bedtime. We shared a room as well as a full-sized canopy bed. I have no idea what the fight was about, but I remember that the lights had already been turned off and we'd already been warned to get to sleep. 
The crack of light from the hallway grew bigger as Dad opened the door, got me out of bed, and carried me to the bathroom for a spanking. But after he walked me over to the toilet, Dad told me to sit down instead of bend over. Then he crouched down beside me and started asking me questions about what had happened. Finally, he asked me if I understood that staying up and fighting was disobedience and that disobedience was a sin. I told him yes. Then Dad asked me if I wanted Jesus to forgive me for that sin and to come into my heart and save me from all the sin that I'd ever committed and all the sin I would continue to commit as long as I was alive. Yes, I told him, I do. So Dad led me in a simple prayer of salvation. He hugged my neck and told me he was proud of me. Then he put me back to bed. The next morning, Dad and I were walking out to the car so he could take me to school. And there in the parking lot, with the parsonage behind us and the church right in front of us, Dad asked if I remembered what had happened the night before. Yes, sir, I said. Then he asked if it still felt real to me. Yes, sir, I said. That's as much as I can recall about the momentous event. We never wrote down the date or what day of the week it was. But Mom and Dad both say it was in November, just a few weeks before I turned six years old. Mom and Dad made me wait a few more months to get baptized. They wanted to make sure I was serious first. And when they finally let me, Dad, of course, did the dunking. Now every preacher has his own way of baptizing. Dad's custom has always been to put his hand out in front of the person he is about to baptize just before taking him or her under the water. Then the person getting baptized is supposed to grab onto Dad's forearm with both hands while Dad plugs the man or woman's nose with his thumb and knuckled forefinger and plunges him or her beneath the cleansing flood. Some ministers like to put a white cloth in the hand they extend so the baptizee can expect a certain degree of separation between the minister's hand and his or her nose. Not my dad, though. My dad was a bare nose grabber. I'm sure we practiced at home before my official baptism ceremony, but when it came time for me to grab Dad's forearm that day in the water, I panicked. I reached up for the back of his neck instead, and I held on for dear life. Clearly, Dad never saw this coming, or he would have stopped me somehow. Still, he was a professional, and he only paused for half a second before deciding to just go down into the water with me. This would never have worked on another grown-up, but since I was a child and he was a former state champion quarterback, he was able to get me covered without completely dousing his own head. I'm sure there was applause when we both resurfaced, but I don't remember it. I'm sure people told me how proud they were afterwards, and I'm sure Mom took pictures and I was embarrassed. I don't remember any of that, though. What I remember is grabbing my dad's ample neck and lacing my fingers behind it. I remember not letting go. began therapy at 23 years old, my faith in God looked much the same as it did when I was a little girl. I had a primal belief in God, but it felt like my faith was wholly dependent on how well I could hold on to God myself. So much life had happened since that initial dunking when I was a little girl that it felt like Jesus was far away and incompetent, perhaps even impotent. 
I knew I was supposed to love God with all my heart. I'd heard it over and over again about the sacrifice he'd made to show the world his love. But that's how he feels about everyone, I thought. Isn't there something more specific, I wondered, that he only feels for me? Growing up in church, I'd heard many people talk about having a personal relationship with Christ. But I didn't know what that looked like. I knew right from wrong, and I'd been trying to do the right things my whole life, but it felt like all I got for my trouble was more and more disappointment, more pain, more fear. I'd read oodles of devotionals over the years, and I'd practiced daily quiet times during several different phases of my life. But I knew I didn't mean it when we sang songs like, Oh, how I love Jesus, and Christ is all I need. No, what I felt instead were my own slippery, wet knuckles and I wasn't sure how much longer they could hold on. The place where Gail and I attended church was in the repurposed store of a strip mall. We both had friends in the band that played for half an hour every Sunday. Then the pastor would walk up on stage and share a simple Bible story. It was a hip little place, back when contemporary worship services were just beginning to sprout up across the country. Since we'd both grown up in the Baptist world of the Deep South, John and I found flip-flops and rock music far more appealing than singing hymns and dressing to impress on Sunday mornings. One of our pastor's favorite sayings at that time was this, Worship is transformational. He taught us that when you give your time and attention to praising God, the Holy Spirit is free to do His work in your heart. I'm not sure whether I believed Him or if I just liked the music, but Sunday after Sunday, I stood and sang with all my heart. Even when I was exhausted from caring for my newborn baby, even though I was still struggling with some of the feelings that had surfaced through my counseling sessions with Gail, the truths that were shared in that place and the loving people there compelled me to sing. One morning after his talk, the pastor called the band back up to the stage. I have no idea what the message was about that day, but I can tell you what happened to me during that final song. The room was dimly lit, but my eyes were closed anyhow and the music was loud, because that's how we liked it. I think we were singing a song called Let the River Flow, and I think my hands were halfway raised, more out of surrender than out of devotion. That's when it happened. In my head, in the vision of my imagination, I saw a bright yellow light. I looked up to see bricks falling away, and a man on a horse breaking them apart with a shining silver lance. It sounds a little cheesy, but he was wearing a suit of armor, like some kind of knight from the Middle Ages. Suddenly, I knew the man was Jesus. He'd found me stuck inside that old brick tunnel, scared and alone in the dark. He knew I couldn't bust out of there myself, so he came and broke through instead. And he did all of that just for me, because he saw me, because he knew all about me, and he still loved me anyway. All at once, I felt surrounded by God's unique and perfect love. For once, there was no room left for fear. It surprised me so much that I nearly fell over, but I managed to open my eyes and sit back down in my cushiony seat first. But after a minute, I had to stand up again because I was crying so hard that I made noise, and I'm not the kind of person who is inappropriately loud at church. Locked behind the stall door in the bathroom, I continued to pour tears as I tried to catch my breath. Then I heard someone else open the main door. I peeked out and saw Gail, so I unlocked the door and almost tackled her with a hug. It took her a minute to figure out what was going on. I was a slobbering mess who wasn't making much sense as I tried to explain it to her. Finally, 
I said that it was a good cry, and I was actually feeling happy. Oh, she said, sounding surprised and bewildered, as she patted my back and tried to steady my shaking shoulders. Once I regained a more normal breathing pattern, Gail let me go. She backed up, opened her purse, and dug around in the bottom of it for a few seconds. Here, she said, as she pulled out her hand, offering me a cinnamon-flavored Altoid. It'll dam up the deluge, she promised. It was another awkward moment, me with my red, wet face and her with her giant purse full of surprises. Even though I couldn't explain it very well to her, it's important that Gail came into the restroom at that moment. She was the only one I'd ever talked to about that cold, dark tunnel. The only one who could understand the miracle of what had just happened. For the first time in my life, I got it. I didn't have to dig my own way out. It had never been up to me in the first place. Just because my arms were wrapped around Jesus' neck, my fingers tangled in his hair, my hands clutched tightly together, it didn't mean that I was the one doing the holding. I hadn't been able to see it before, but Jesus had always been holding me too. The next time I met with Gail, I tried to explain myself more clearly, though I've often wondered if I ever made any sense to her at all. How much can we really see inside the heart of another human being anyhow? No one can say for sure, but I'm so thankful that she tried. For what could be more holy than becoming a witness, than caring enough about the pain of someone else to sit long with them and listen, to risk feeling someone else's hurt yourself in order to help their hurt begin to heal? Talk therapy with Gail was my first step toward healing, from what I would later recognize as postpartum depression, but it was also something more. For the first time in my life, it felt like Jesus came down to earth and put on human skin just for me, little Jana Beth Young Barber. But it wasn't the skin of a newborn baby this time. It was the skin of a 42-year-old housewife, recently turned social worker, named Gail Walker. All these years later, my memory of those days can feel a little blurry around the edges, but when I quiet myself, I can still remember the sound of breaking bricks. I can feel the warmth of being held by someone who knows me a little too well and loves me anyway. I see the brightness of a blinding yet comforting light. I smell the heat of my own perspiration, and in my mouth I taste the strong, sweet flavor of cinnamon. The younger brother. I don't know how I'm going to show my face. I never thought I'd see this town again, but here I stand. I've come home to disgrace. Shall I shuffle in with downcast eyes, abase myself before him, or pull that old sly grin? I don't know how I'm going to show my face. I've got a plan. I know I can't erase the shame, but I can join his hired men. Say, here I stand. I've come home to disgrace. I'll show him that I've changed. I know my place. I forfeited his love from way back then. I don't know how I'm going to show my face. But now he races toward me to embrace the son he loves. He doesn't listen when I stutter, here I stand, I've come home to disgrace. His love besieged my shame and laid it waste. And do you think I'll be the same again? I don't.
No, now I'm going to show my face. Here I stand. I've come home to this grace. That was the second of Jonathan Rogers' Two Villanelles, which originally appeared in Volume 2 of The Molehill. Open any dictionary, and you'll find that the English vocabulary offers near-endless iterations of multisyllabic, intelligent-sounding utterances descended from the historic wonders of various Germanic and Romance languages. But sometimes, that's not what you want. Sometimes, for reasons that escape your waking mind, you develop a hankering for a nice, sticky oblute, or a desperate pleave, or even for the comfort of a friendly spoothing. And in times like these, the dictionary won't help you, but do you know what will? Words of befuddlement. This week wasn't easy. Our word was more esoteric than ever, a collection of phonetic soundings so befuddling that none would dare assign it meaning other than the very best, the very brightest. And it's a good thing they are among us because they came through. Let's hear some of our best definitions for last week's word, spooth. Spooth, to tickle someone with a spork. Spooth, to quietly and surreptitiously dip a spoon into the bottom of a jar in order to retrieve the remains of any creamy, delicious, spreadable nut butter. Example sentence. Whilst her husband was engrossed in watching the first televised NFL game of the 2020 season, Olivia stole quietly into the pantry to spooth the delectable remains of the last jar of Nutella. This word was coined in mid-2020 when pandemic peanut butter shortages left store shelves bereft, save for forgotten jars of no-salt, sugar-free, generic sunflower seed butter. Mmm, sad, sad times these are. Spooth. To turn one's pillow to the cold side, especially after distress or drooling. Example sentence. My dream vexed me so that I spoothed my pillow in order to cease my ailing thoughts. Spooth. The act of petting a platypus. Like the animal, the verb is an amalgamation. It serves as both transitive and intransitive, referring both to the effect on the platypus and on the person doing the petting. Spooth. Borrowed from medieval Finnish. For a woman to love a man despite unkempt facial hair. Example sentence taken from Helga's soliloquy in Risley Kofflump's Viking Miscellanea. Nay, mother, stay your dagger. I spooth Hagrid. I spooth him at cost of kin. I spooth him at loss of broth and bread. I spooth that tangled head for his silver tongue, for even his belch has its rhyme and meter. Unfortunately, None of these definitions quite lined up with Pete Peterson's original. To give comfort with a small scooping utensil. And now I will share with you this week's word of befuddlement. 
As always, you're invited to send in your own made-up definition of this word to drew at rabbitroom.com, and I might just read it during next week's show. This week's word is sogage. S-O-G-G-A-G-E. It's a noun, sogage. That's it for episode five of the Mole Hill Podcast. Tune in next week for more poetry, stories, and shenanigans. Special thanks to Jonathan Rogers, Jana Barber, and Zach and Maggie, who composed all original theme music just for this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. See you next week.